June 6th, uh, excuse me, June 16th, 2024. That is the Father's Day for next year. And I just want to let you know that ahead of time so you can be prepared in advance. Six months, 29 days from now, Father's Day is coming up. And like Christmas, perhaps, you're wondering what to get your kids or you're wondering what to get each other. Uh, I'm at the point now where I actually text my kids, hey, can you give me a list of ideas of what you'd like for Christmas so that your mom and I or your grandparents or each other as siblings or others who are interested know what to get you? Because they would rather buy something you enjoy versus something you don't enjoy. You only can get so many bad pairs of socks and sweaters if you're like, okay, let's just, you know, we got to figure this out. And cash just seems so impersonal. So here's some ideas for Father's Day gift. Uh, let's see. There's the $1. million car they on from Bugatti, one of the most expensive production cars ever made. There is the uh, $25 million watch, a uh, timepiece by Chappard that's adorned with three heart-shaped diamonds, a 15-carat pink diamond, a 12-carat blue diamond, an 11-carat white diamond. Just for good measure, they threw in 163 carats of white and yellow diamonds to bring the total to 201 carats of diamonds. That's some serious bling. Uh, there's the $48.5 million phone, the Falcon Supernova iPhone 6 pink diamond phone, currently the most expensive phone in the world. Or there's the $2 billion house. That was billion with the B. It's in the middle of downtown Mumbai, India, around an area that's full of poverty. Each family member in the house has their own personal health club. You can't be sharing dumbbells. There's also a six-level garage for 168 cars. Most of the tower is built from glass. The ultra-modern house also features a panic room and a cinema, at, and each level has its own lush garden. The family employs about 600 servants and staff to service them in their house. Well, good news, dads. Even if you have or will, not, or will not be given any of these extravagant gifts, you have nevertheless been given a gift of even greater value, and it's one in which you recognize the gift of the children. The children are, not to sound in any way cliché, priceless. What value can you put on that son or daughter that God has given you? Psalm 127 verse 3 says, children are a gift from God. Notice the fullness of the statement. They're not just from God, they are gifts from God. Some people view their children as a means to secure their own retirement. Others view their children as a means to accomplish what they could never themselves accomplish in their childhood, athletics, education, other opportunities. Other parents view their children as simply a tax break, helping lower their taxable income. Others perhaps because they want more people in the annual Christmas card picture and their identity is incomplete with it's just them and their dog. Two questions, why did God give us children? What do we do with them? 
I mean, think about how a child receives a gift. Many children will be receiving gifts this coming year at Christmas. Well, the question largely relates to whether or not they wanted what the very thing that they got. We've seen children who open up a gift that they either, A, don't recognize it, they don't know what to think of it, or recognize it but were not expecting it and had not asked for it. And so depending on the age of the child determines how honest that child is in their response. There are, of course, comical, if not yet sad, videos on the internet of kids who receive gifts that they did not want and did not respond that well. But when they receive gifts that they did want and how exuberant they were, how enthusiastic their response was, shows the joy in which they received them. It's exactly what they wanted. Well, how we receive the gifts that God gives us for the children really says a lot about what we think about them whether we see them and cherish them and value them and glad to enjoy them or if we resent them. And though we might receive them, whether or not we raise them as if we value them or not. So, thinking about how not to raise up a child, receiving a gift in the wrong way, let me give you 10 ideas on how not to train up a child when they are young. Listen to these. Number one, never tell your children no. Every toy and technology should be theirs if they want it and ask for it enough. Number two, never discipline them. Number three, be inconsistent when you instruct. Keep them always guessing. Do you mean what you say or do you not mean what you say? Never let them know when to really believe you. Number four, always blame their lack of self-control on a biological problem or a dietary cause or a lack of sleep or something else that excuses the behavior away. Number five, let the primary influencers and teachers in their life be their professional caretakers. Number six, don't ever get on the floor and play with them. Never get down to their level. Never engage with them. Never speak that long with them. Number seven, disagree with your spouse publicly and teach your children to pick their favorite parent. You know, the kid who doesn't get what they want from one parent goes to the other parent and finds out a way to get that parent to reverse the decision of the previous parent. And if not worse, speak bad about your spouse in front of the child, even to the child. Number eight, work as much as you can. After all, kids need more money in their homes, not more time with their parents. Number nine, criticize other people all the time in front of the kids. Especially use sarcasm a lot when talking to and about other people. It will help teach your children how to be critical of others and not be held responsible for it. Because with the, with the passing of the phrase, I was just kidding, all bets are off and no one can be held responsible. And number 10, lose your Bible on Monday. Find it again on Sunday morning, lose it again the next day. That's 10 ideas on how not to raise up a child when they are young. 10 ideas on how not to raise up a child when they're older. Number one, criticize your spouse in front of your children so your children feel justified in disrespecting their parent. How much a teenager will learn how to interact and honor their mother or their father becomes a byproduct of even in their teenage years, what they begin to learn. Number two, choose sports that force life to be centered around them. Preferably pick sports that will take you out on Sundays. After all, corporate worship is good, but sports are better. Number three, live by the motto, too little, too late, when it comes to talking to your children about all things related to sex and all the other talks. After all, their friends and the world will be glad to teach them in your absence. Number four, if you decide to break down and teach your children, 
teach them the evils of the world and all those people living outside the home, but never mention what's in their heart or what's been found in your own heart. Number five, don't ask about their day or talk much about their friends or their decisions or their future. You can get to that, well, just some other time, not today. You're busy. You should rest. Number six, make sure to have such a dismal marriage that your children disdain marriage. Hopefully, you don't want it to be married themselves one day because what's the point? If mom and dad's marriage is my goal, then I'll just pass. Number seven, don't ever talk about the worship service in the car afterwards. Better yet, when you do talk about it, be sure to talk about and criticize everything you saw, you sung, you heard, was said, and everyone involved, what they wore, what they were saying, who they were interacting with. Number eight, never show your children an answer to a question asked by them with the Bible. Let them think some other expert knows better than God. Number nine, do not get caught dead reading the Bible on your own by your children. Never let them see you open it, read it, interact with it yourself, for yourself. Number 10, never care, celebrate, or talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the impact it's had on your life and how God is changing you for His glory. Or we could choose another option. Another option, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 7 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach him diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. What are two common extremes in parenting? They're often found in our homes, even our Christian homes. Number one, parenting by protection. Sounds virtuous at first, but it's often motivated by fear. Parenting by protection by protection has some of the common symptoms as the following. The common basis in decision-making for children is based on what if. It's always imagining a future based on fear. FBI background checks are often preferred and needed for friendships to be approved. Who knows? They might meet somebody that's a bad influence. Another way of doing a possible symptom check on parenting by protection by fear is the belief that if I can control my child's environment enough, if I can reduce, if not remove, the opportunity for sin, then they'll be fine, implying that sin is an external problem with not an internal problem. There are implied theological beliefs with such a course of action. Protection seems commendable at first, but for many, becomes idolatrous and faithless after a closer look. You become the God of their life, shaping them. Another extreme on the opposite end, if parenting by protection is here, then parenting by provision is over here. Again, initially sounds good, right? Don't we want to protect our children or provide for our children? But wait, let's just take a look. Parenting by provision becomes a form of neglect, which seems ironic to say that, right? Because isn't provision not neglect? Well, your evaluation of your parenting is based on the opportunities provided for them, the academics you give them the athletic opportunities you give them, the technology you buy for them, the hobbies that you support for them. You are, after all, providing everything for them. That, therefore, makes you a good parent. Your children are easily pacified by technology, the phones that they have, the computers that they use, the video games that they play. Your conversations at the dining room table consists of reports on grades and piano lessons. It's simply about facts of the day. Again, there are implied theological beliefs that drive this method of parenting as well. 
This is a theological presumption more than anything else. You take care of the physical and let God take care of the spiritual. As far as relational, that's up for anyone's grabs. One parents by fear, one parents by neglect of a true, meaningful investment of relationship. Well, I want to propose to you a balance, parenting by practice. Because going back to the text in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 3, I think there are, we can see by application, six characteristics of parenting by practice. Number one, proactive communication. It is my experience as a parent and as a pastor, even for a time a pastor of teenagers and all of their parents in family ministry, that one of the most fundamental breakdowns in the home is proactive communication. Parents are incredibly limited either in ability or desire to talk to their children. And this gets exposed not by the 16-year-old, it gets exposed by the 6-year-old. That inquisitive 6-year-old who just keeps tapping you on the proverbial shoulder with another question and another question. How do you respond? How you respond now paves the way for future conversations with them at 16. Did they stop being inquisitive? No. But oftentimes, they just went to different places to find their answers because they got on your nerves. It never seemed like it was the right time. One of the greatest but oftentimes hardest demonstrations of you fulfilling Philippian 2-type humility of thinking of others more important than yourself is your willingness, I would say even your desire, to talk to your children about what your children want to talk about. Now, I'll be honest, it'll kill a lot of time, take away a lot of time. Because you just have to keep going in directions like, I just would rather do something else right now than this thing we're doing right now. Are there tools required for proactive communication? Yes. Tools like thoughtfulness, patience, and love. Part of the skill needed in parenting is learning how to ask good questions. I think one thing that often becomes a skill that sometimes parents of teenagers don't know how to have is how to talk about their kid about their day. If you simply keep asking the same question, question like, how was your day, that question expires rather quickly after so many times. One word answers often suffice for the parent, from the child to the parent, as opposed to learning how to ask that question in about 30 different ways. The second approach a rather practice or characteristic of parenting by practice is not only proactive communication, it's also regular confession. We can devour books on the best ways to discipline our children. Why? Because our, how proficient they are at sinning. But sometimes we lose sight of painful, humbling reality, and that is we as parents at times sin too, even against our children. Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24 says, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Think about it like this as a point of audit. How often do you as a parent use the Lord's Supper at Grace Church or your church if you're at another church, which for Grace Church is almost always the first Sunday of every month. We never surprise you. You know what's coming. How often do you use the Lord's Supper as a trigger to have a conversation with your son or daughter or kids collectively about reconciling with them relationally? 
hey, I need to talk to you about this thing that we had this past week. I need to have this conversation. Daddy was not very patient. Mommy lost her temper, and honestly, that problem was not you, it was me. I did not respond to you correctly. And I, with integrity, am going to have a hard time going before the Lord tomorrow with a clean conscience to participate in the Lord's Supper as I'm supposed to examine myself, not because I'm losing my salvation, gaining it, losing it, gaining it, but out of good conscience, I want intimacy with the Lord, and I can't do that if I knowingly am in sin against another that I've not reconciled. That even includes you, son or daughter. Would you forgive me? What a profound lesson that is to teach your son or daughter of how you regularly even examine yourself accordingly. May I just remind us as parents, um, the idea of regular confession that you're a sinner, uh, just to remind you, your kids already know this. There's no surprise. Like, what, mom, you sin? I never knew this. This is breaking news. That just makes so much sense now. No, they know. They know what you know, but sometimes it's hard for you to actually say. But how actually endearing that can be to see how you own that reality and how you're working it out in the same way that you speak to them so you are having to address yourself. Please understand there's a difference between explanation versus excuse. In the same way that we give all kinds of excuses for our children's behavior, we're tempted to do the same thing for our behavior. You know, mommy was tired. Mommy wasn't feeling well. Mommy had a long day at work. Mommy and daddy had a little bit of a disagreement. And just on and on the list can go. This is what is in a form of excusing behavior. Learn to confess your sin. Learn to ask for forgiveness, saying things like, will you please forgive me? And then here's the kicker. Be quiet. Don't say anything else. Leave it with them. That's okay. Too often we get back into that monologue mode. We just keep talking and talking and talking, and now it just gets lost in a sea of words. The first characteristic of parenting by practice is proactive communication. Second one is regular confession. Third is consistent example. Consistent example. Character is proven by what is done in secret when no one is watching, not by what is done when you have an audience. The Pharisees were very good in public and enjoyed their audience, yet Jesus called them whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23, verse 27. This is where it gets uncomfortable if we're not careful. But honestly, this is where it's wonderful. If you'll let kids be a regular audit on your own integrity, you will grow and mature a ton. You can fool the coworkers, you can fool the pastors, you can fool the small group leaders, you can fool the other Christians, but you can only go so long before your, your kids aren't fooled. It's, it's the practical things. Where is the place of the Bible when it comes to you making your financial decisions by how you shop on Amazon, at Home Depot, looking for a new car? How do they see you work out decisions? What do you pray about? What do you ask them to pray with you about? What about your, your conversations on the phone with others? I mean, I'll be the first to go. How many of us as parents have had some heated conversations only to have someone call us and or come to the door and be like, hi there, it's good to see you. What's going on? No, oh, it's a great time. Yeah, no, happy to talk. And our child looks at us like, what, what just took place? Where did my dad just go? That's not my father. 
we would be many times better off by saying that would you and could you and should you speech to our children instead work on developing our own hunger and thirst for righteousness, lest our children rise up and say, I'm sorry, I cannot hear you. Your, acts are speak your actions are speaking louder than your words. Number four, tying back to a theme from earlier, a dynamic marriage. For those of you who are married, one of the saddest blights in the church of Jesus Christ is the status of our marriages. I'm not talking about whether or not a Christian gets divorced or not. I'm talking about the quality of the marriage. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 4 says, I have found whom, him whom my soul loves. It repeats this description many times throughout the book. The status of many of our marriages is more of a, I have found the one whom provides for me. I have found the one whom cooks for me. I have found the one whom lives with me, as opposed to, I have found him or her whom my soul loves. One of the things that C.J. Mahaney teaches in his book, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, primarily written for husbands, though there is a chapter at the end from Carolyn, his wife, to wives, is the opportunity to serve and surprise. Calling husbands to serve and surprise their wives. Finding ways to study them, to know them, to love them. Is it any wonder that so many kids grow up and the last thing in many of their minds is marriage? Why would it be? For so many, marriage looked like it was simply about procreation and provision. That's how we got the kids here, biologically. That's how we keep them here, we provide for them. The average young person in many homes in America today says, if I can figure out my own provision and I'm willing to postpone the procreation plus anything else, I won't get married. What we want them to see is a sweetness and a sacrifice that can only be known in a godly marriage. I think one of the significant realities is to teach our children not about dating when they're teenagers, but teach our children about marriage when they're toddlers. They actually think differently about that relationship. How we can observe and how we can teach what it looks like to be committed. Not committed just, you know, begrudgingly, but committed gladly, forgivingly, patiently. Where there is a mutual love that's sanctifying and delightful. Where we are in seasons of difficulty and seasons of delight. But we maintain our covenant commitment that we will forgive and love each other. The fifth common feature of parenting by practice of what we actually do in our homes is number five, active service. Scripture is clear, to be saved is to serve. From 1 Corinthians to 1 Peter and other passages in between, to be granted eternal life and indwell with the Holy Spirit is to be given spiritual gifts. Yet more often in our hotel rooms, we complain about the room service that we do actually put on a uniform and serve the occupants of our hotel rooms. What do our children think about the body of Christ? What is it good for? Do they default to thinking what they can get out of it or what they can put into it? The answer is found in your life and practicing in how it looks like in your schedule. We cannot think of many things that's rewarding and sanctifying as simply being an active member of the church. That alone in its richness, regular ministry to the other saints of God. Importantly and fundamentally, the last characteristic of parenting by practice is it's gospel-focused. Here's the reality in a lot of our parenting by default. We fear liberty, what our kids will go up and do, so we'd rather raise legalists. 
And as a result, we teach our children that God is happy with us because of what we do or what we've not done. It's the means by which we find our security and simultaneously our judgmentalism of others. What a damning heresy. No person on the planet has ever earned favor with God because of what they did. The reality is that a home from Ephesians 6 and any other text is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sinners saved by the all-sufficient Son of God. Faith in Him alone. So sure, there's proactive communication. Sure, there's regular confession. Sure, there's consistent example. Sure, there's dynamic marriage. Sure, there's active service. But even seemingly your best days are not enough to earn favor with God. It is only Christ in His favor accomplished in His life then expedited through His work on the cross as a substitute for us, accomplished in His sacrifice, and then uh, accepted through His resurrection, is it enough? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is at the center of who one is and what they believe. Ted Tripp, in a book by that same name, Shepherding a Child's Heart, says, shepherding the heart means helping them understand themselves, God's work, the ways of God, how sin works in the human heart, and how the gospel comes to them at the most profound levels of human need. Is this a new prescription for the sin-free save kit? No. But it's a more faithful example of a Christ-like life where your children are able to identify your Christian walk, matching with your Christian doctrine. The truth is, the rest is up to Jesus Christ. We pray with faith for Him to change the lives of our kids' hearts, while God gives us wisdom in how to commend the Lord to our kids. Here's the encouragement to give you. Parenting is ultimately not about what you do. It's rather about who you are. And I think that's a fundamental thing that needs to not be forgotten as parents. Too often parenting is focusing on another method, all of which are understandably appropriate to ask. Wisdom is certainly good to seek. Proverbs chapter 4 says that. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. But if we're not careful, it can lead us onto this constant treadmill of what I'm doing or not doing. And instead, miss the very fundamental question. It's not what you do, but rather who you are. Young parents, some of of which you are in this room, tend to think they're either the best parents or the worst parents in the world. You either think you're killing it or it's killing you. The the truth is neither are true. And this is even the point of parenting. Parenting is not a competition. It's a stewardship. You nor your children will be saved by perfect or even almost perfect parenting. We are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, because of His grace alone. When that truth is dug down deep into our hearts, we're motivated to love Him by how we raise our children in order that they know Him and love Him. But we realize that it's ultimately His work in our children's hearts, not ours. And it's His timing of doing that, not ours. If there was a prescription that I could give you, but which I could offer you how to have respectable, well-behaved kids who are converted and put their faith in Christ by the time they leave your household at age 18, 
I'd give it to you. There is no such promise from God's Word. Instead, we walk by faith, not by sight. Trusting that obedience to God's Word is indeed not only the wisest course of action, but also the best gift to our children. Ultimately, it's His work in our kids' hearts, not ours. This shouldn't tempt us towards apathy. What does it matter then? What does it matter of what I do? But it should teach us to trust Him and His work in our kids' hearts, our kids' lives. Where else would you want your kids' futures to be? To be in your hands is to be in the hands of one who will be constantly anxious, always paralyzed by the self-examination of would've, could've, and should've. No one can live through that with any joy and confidence in the future. But instead to recognize, no matter what I do or do not do, said or did not say, the Lord knows. I love Him. I'm committed to Him. And the best ways that I can, I want to help my kids know Him as well, as well. All right, now from what I've prepared to what you are going to ask, here's what I want to do. I want to now shift, <coughs> excuse me, into giving you a chance to ask questions on what I've covered or what I've not covered with this one disclaimer. If your questions are going to be regarding some of the older issues in life, older issues in life, that's a too big of a statement, older issues in the parenting spectrum, adolescent years, that kind of stuff, or what about technology, or what about curfew, what about a lot, that kind of stuff, wait till tomorrow. I'm going to address that in part at least, and what I don't, we can get to that Q&A. So if those, those things are what you're thinking about in your questions, wait till tomorrow, I'll get to that. Uh, both in teaching and in Q&A. But in anything I have covered or I've not covered, some of you are like, hey, uh, I don't know what to do on any number of things. Um, I've got Queen Bee here, Danelle Bancroft. And um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to set this up, and I'm doing this uh, because we need to capture this did I do that right? Chris was right there, okay? And then, Danelle, you take this and do your beatbox. I'm excited for that. And then let me start off by actually giving you some recommended resources because the challenge I have had in preparing for this four-part series is I actually want to teach you about 20 lessons. So... Uh, I am leaving more on the editorial floor than it's actually making its way to you. And I'm always struggling between sort of the practical and the principle. I realize in where you are living in the details of your life, you're like, okay, that's great, Eric. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But can we get to this over here? I'm happy to address that. But I wouldn't want to be so specific to some particularities that it would be otherwise missed for a lot of other people. I do have some resources that I want to make you aware of. If you were to ask me, Eric, we are, as a family or as parents, wanting to like, we're not a very big reading family, but I would like something that's um, going to be like tight, condensed, could be good for even my wife and I. We could lay in bed, read this 30 minutes and discuss it, done in 30 minutes and go to sleep or on the couch, whatever. Uh, I'd recommend this book to you, Gospel-Centered Family. 
Gospel-centered family, just going to give you the table of contents, is sort of whet your appetite. Part one, a gospel-centered family. Part two, a grace-centered family. Part three, a word-centered family. Part four, a mission-centered family. In each of these 12 chapters, he's talking about a parent's heart and a child's heart. And they're just very brief where it has the key point, scriptural reflection, a brief thing to read, and some questions for reflection. So this is not even 100 pages, okay? That would be, I would say, where to go there. My wife is being a helpmate to me right now. Um, then the one I would say I would want you to read overall is Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Shepherding a Child's Heart, if you say, Eric, what one book I'm parenting, if you wanted me to read, if you picked a book for me, I would, I would personally buy you this book if I had the money to buy all of you. I'd buy you this book right here, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Uh, his brother, Paul, that's Ted, Paul, his brother wrote the book I'd recommend if you're parenting teenagers or you're about to parent teenagers or you're like, I want to help others parent teenagers called Age of Opportunity. We'll make these books available. You can come up and write them down and see them later. But Age of Opportunity by Paul Tripp. So Ted Tripp, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Uh, uh, Paul Tripp, thank you. I forgot his name. Age of Opportunity, even subtitled, A Biblical Guide to Parenting Teens. Don't Make Me Count to Three is sort of in that line of thinking. It says a mom's look at heart-oriented discipline, super practical, smaller. So that's a plus. This is an important topic because a lot of people tell you, like, what do we do about kids? Do we spank them? Do we not spank them? Do we want them in the corner, put their nose up against the wall, put, on a, put them on a stool, make them question the meaning of life? What do we do? Great resource for you here. And then last one. For now, I've got a, little, a row of books up here uh, until we get to question, is for those who are expecting and you're like, I, like what do I do? I, I mean, I want to know if I'm a medical, like I want my kid to survive their infancy and parenting, I want, I'd like to have some practice. What do I do? Like, do we just like, you know, how do we do about feeding? What about naps? All stuff like this. I, I really recommend BabyWise. Uh, it's a, a great resource. There's sort of older versions of this, baby-wise, toddler-wise, child-wise. I don't know. It keeps going wise. Um, but I really recommend uh, baby-wise, subtitled, Giving Your Infant the Gift of Nighttime Sleep, which could be subtitled, Giving Yourself the Gift of Nighttime Sleep. Um, so we often give all new parents this book, and we typically find, like with a lot of uh, parents, they're like, thank you, and then they don't read it. And then they come and ask a lot of questions about parenting. You're like, did you read the book? Like, well, maybe, no. Okay, well, I mean, you want me to like reading time with Pastor Eric? Well, I'll just sit on the phone and read it to you? Like, what do we want to do here? So, all right, questions. Uh, if you can go to the microphone to ask the question, that'd be great. Danelle is here. What, what questions do you have? My question is, is there any difference, if at all, um, when raising an adopted child, either it's just you guys and an adopted child, or you are able to have your own children and you're adding on an adopted child? In what ways is it different, and can it be difficult in not showing partiality, or is that ever a temptation at all? You want me to answer that? You want to answer that? I would say just by experience, I've only done it once, just for the record. For those who don't know, you want to give just a quick little bio so they understand yes. your answer? So I have three sons. Our third one was adopted. 
Um, at what age? At age six. I have never struggled with partiality. Um, I think during the adoption process and all of that that it entails, um, it's just almost impossible to have partiality because I would even, and I wasn't listening succinctly to what you said, but I would even change the word our children. I think you, you said like children versus adopted children. I don't see it like that at all. Mm. I mean, it's like not even a difference. And the joke is my son is black, so he looks different, but I do not feel different at all. Mm. Love them all. I cried just as much when he went to college. It was terrible. <laughs> I cry equally with all three of my children. I'll answer this question. I want to highlight the resource of Pastor Ronald and Kristen, who, similar to us, have two biological children and one adopted child. Uh, they had their biological children before their adopted child. Some people adopt and then have biological children. But to get to the heart of that question, uh, in our situation, we had two biological children before we adopted our, our third child. Um, where partiality comes in to play is not based on who's adopted, who's not. It's based on who behaves the best and who does not. <laughs> Parents often prefer a child who makes their life easier as a, as a parent. And so a parent has to be very, very sensitive to that default instinct. Uh, your goal is to raise your children in such a way that if you ask them, if somebody else asked them rather, who's mom or dad's favorite, they'd have a hard time answering that. Having said that, get back to your question, uh, we adopted a six-year-old, not a newborn. The reason I highlight that is because when we came into our house, we told his brothers, our other sons, hey, when your son comes home, we adopted him from Ethiopia, when he comes home, there's going to be things that initially he's going to do that if you did, you'd get a spanking for. And he's not going to get a spanking. And you're going to think we have partiality towards him, not you. But the reason that he's not going to see the same consequence initially is because he does not have the backdrop in which that discipline is an expression of love. So it's very important for us to establish this is a secure place, this is a loving place, this is a providing place. Nothing you're going to do is going to bring that into question. And we're going to establish that repeatedly and, and, on, on, and we hope pervasively he knows he is loved. Ironically, that was finally so well established that he felt almost off or treated differently because he was not spanked for things his brother was, and he wanted to be. Which reminds you of what Hebrews 12 says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves like a loving father does a child, as a point of protection, as a point of care and correction. So partiality both in blessing and in correcting should not be seen. It should be equal. And that relationship and communication should be practiced. Good question. Next question. This is a chance for you to stay up there if you have a question after the other person. Um, one of the things you talked about was um, like not, or disagreeing with your spouse kind of in public and giving your child the chance of like uh, you know, going to one parent for another thing. Um, 
is it wise to disagree on a parenting decision in front of the child and then like see how they handle that? Or how, sh how what is the wisest way to go about something like that? Yeah. I can think of one contention in our home, though I don't, it, it wasn't a strong contention, but that we had the conversation in front of the boys where we kind of disagreed about it, but we had a conversation before we had it in front of the boys. Does that make sense? So you're putting some parameters on it. So he grew up in a home that did sports morning, noon, and night. They never ate dinner at the table together. He went, he lived on the drive-through of Taco Bell and the hot dogs at 7-Eleven. <laughs> they were four for a buck. I was the opposite. We were at our dinner table, our whole family, you know, every night, 5.30. So when sports was potentially introduced, I was like, um, because I just know that's going to take time away from everything. So we had to go at it very balanced. Um, but we had that conversation in front of the boys, and they knew that I leaned on, let's not do so many or any, and he leaned on, let's maybe do some, but not have it be like his childhood. So I think maybe if you're going to have a disagreement, maybe have it before you have it in front of the kids, that would maybe be... Yeah, worse. I think that the principle there is you're going to learn a decision that your spouse has made without you being present. And from what little you know of it from the child, and I mean to qualify that, what little you know of it from the child, not the greatest source of all information, it sounds like a decision you would probably have made differently. The, the, the default should be support that decision publicly to that child. Then have a private conversation with your spouse, apart from the child, say, help me understand it. You might learn new information from the parent, quite likely, that the child's not presenting, which now makes the decision make sense. Or if there's no new information that's that significant, but you actually disagree with the decision, help your spouse at least understand why you maybe would have a different decision. In the context of a biblical roles and relationship with the, with the husband being the head of the household, he has to make decisions. And I think the reason this is significant is because there's oftentimes a disparity between the voice of a mother and the voice of a father. And the disparity is at times, if, if you have a stay-at-home mom, for example, not all moms are stay-at-home, 73% of them are not, but if you have a stay-at-home mom, she's got the most minutes with the kids. So she's having to make the most amount of decisions. If she's not careful, she'll make decisions that are honestly just understandably exhausting. I mean, it's like, just this or that or this or that, and the dad kind of comes home and finds these decisions. Well, if he's not careful, he'll think all these real decisions are wrong. I go, hold on, walk a few days in her shoes, you might have made the same decision. And secondly, it's also for him to recognize there's not two different people here where it's like, man, when dad comes home, he'll flip mom's decision, or mom sometimes doesn't want to be the disciplinarian at all, so then she's like, wait till your dad comes home, which means they start looking forward to the dad not coming home because he's always the bearer of bad news. He's always the bearer of consequences. So you, you create a good cop, bad cop, which is not a good place to be. Now, understandably, the mom, to her defense, is like, it's because I'm just tired. I'm so tired. I'm tired of all the correcting. I'm tired of discipline. Well, that's not then a problem. Is, the problem is the dad needs to better resource her and help her. But that goes back to some decisions are like bigger decisions, some are just small, and how to work those conversations out. Yeah. Other question? Uh, so question, hopefully this can be 
quick answers, but like kind of twofold. So the first one you talked about, forget the wording, but like family centric mm -hmm. in like a negative way of just thinking mm -hmm. it's our family mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. the rest of the world. So how do you, I guess, define those two differences between like family, a positive way of being family centric, like caring for your family versus like that negative aspect? And how do we fight that temptation as individuals and also as the family as a whole, not thinking family centric, but gospel centric as yeah, I'll do the first part, you do the second part. I, I think, to be clear, I want that family to have a kind of a special, distinct reality of who they are. I mean, my last name is Bancroft. Our last name is Bancroft. Uh, to be a Bancroft is to be something special. We even are known as the Bancroft Five. My life is the B5. Have the Jackson Five, we're the, we're the Bancroft Five. We even have our own family logo, if you never knew that. I mean, now we're B6. My son got married, so I have a daughter now. I'm super pumped. Um, so I'm not against that sense of like the distinctiveness of your own family traditions and practices, that kind of thing. That's actually not what I'm talking about. The best way to answer this question is, does that family have its life include others and value others? Not a supporting role to family, but are, are, is that home known for its hospitality? Is that home for known for serving and learning from others? Is that family known for engaging with others as well? So that there's a sense of humility that God rec that they recognize starting with the parents, that God put them in community to both learn from and to serve. So that home should be a home where um, they're glad to serve others and they're glad to learn from others. And that, that's a good environment where it's like they're still who they are as a family, but they love and are thankful for all the people that God's placed around them, both Christians and non-Christians. Would you add any more to that? No. Does that answer it? Okay. <clears throat> Um, how, you guys mentioned the importance of like a healthy marriage and the relationship between spouse, like spouses. How would you handle raising children and their relationship with your spouse when there's like not a lot of family support around you? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I'll, I'll set this up by way of context and then I'll give us the answer. Yeah, yeah. So we, just to give you context for our answer, so we, were, we met married here in South Florida, married for two years, moved away to Los Angeles, where we lived for 10 years. Uh, the first two years there, we didn't have any kids, and then we lived there for eight more years with kids. We had no family. I mean, no cousins, aunts, uncles, in-laws, we had no one. Um, so I say that to say we know what that's like to be in that kind of context, Okay, that was shorter than I thought it was going to be. All right. So, um, so one thought that came to mind was I had a friend that had kids same age as mine. We were kind of pregnant at the same time, had kids at the same time. That doesn't have to be that way. And she was somebody that I trusted her and her husband and knew that there was not going to be any weird issues. Uh, we were like babysitting partners. So like if I wanted to do a ladies Bible study, she would watch my kids on that day. And then maybe later that week, she would do a different one and I would watch her kids or we would swap for date nights and that kind of a thing. I think that's important because I can't imagine not having family and then not having church family to help give you guys some time away. And I think it correlates to your first question. Like we tried to have a date night every week, no matter what. Um, and so I think that's one practical 
thing you could do is like maybe talk with some friends, say, hey, could we do babysitting swap night? Yeah, I mean, it was our practice even before we had kids. And this is an idea for some of you who are married, made without kids. Uh, even our son and daughter-in-law just did this. Um, is that what we did, and I mean this to be a blessing to you and what I'm about to say, is that what we did was we identified couples who, in this case, came to seminary. They came to California. They had no family. Uh, they didn't have much money because they're in seminary, and they're like not making much money while they're in seminary. Uh, so they probably couldn't afford babysitters. And we said to them, hey, can we offer to babysit for you for free so that you can either go to your Bible study that you'd go to that you always couldn't, or are you going to date night that you can't afford dinner and the babysitter? In exchange for when you come home, we get an hour with you on the couch to just talk to you about parenting. Because uh, we want to one day grow up and be like you, but we're, we don't know what we're doing. And that was before we had kids. And then once we had kids, that practice just continued with other parents. How can we bless? How can we serve others? Um, and so I think instead of maybe thinking first, well, who can I get to babysit my kids? You can think, well, and who could we babysit somebody else's kid? And maybe we could have this kind of arrangement and relationship. But I think principally the part I want to highlight that Danelle referenced is kids, when they arrive, are a blessing, but they can, over time, uh, squeeze out the marriage relationship where children become a shared community group project and, and a husband and wife move from being a husband and wife to being co-roommates with this group project raising the kids. And when the kid's last kid leaves the house, however many years or decades later that is, they look at each other and they don't know each other that well. And so I knew as a husband, one of the best things I could do for our son and sons to follow was that I would keep loving their mom. And so that meant I would date their mom regularly. It meant every year for the last 27 years, I would take my wife on a vacation without kids, which sounds great until you're the mother of a newborn and or toddlers, and you think nobody can care for my kid like I can, because nobody knows my kid like I do. And, uh, and I had to try to politely and gently, and then finally sometimes strongly say in my leadership, they're going to live, it's going to be okay. And we, would, and we didn't have a lot of money, and sometimes it just was for a couple nights at a friend's place. We had like a place we could stay at, and like literally like, it was just awesome. We didn't have much, but we loved being together. And I wanted my wife, and I remember this question from C.J. Mahaney's book, I referenced it earlier, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. He said, husbands, ask your wives, do they feel more like a mom or a wife? I was like, I don't want to ask my wife that. I know the answer, <laughs> and I'm not going to like hearing it. And a lot of moms feel like more like a mom than a wife. And that doesn't automatically mean a failure. It just means that there's an opportunity for a husband to love his wife well. And sometimes that means he's got to love her by leading her away from the kids for a night and say, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to spend time on a date. We're going to spend time on a Bible study. We'll be okay. Good question. Before the next person comes up, don't come up yet. Are you coming you up? You can go ahead and come up. Do it. Do it. Yeah. You do it first. No, no. She's in time and place. You're going to go ahead and do your book recommendation. Okay. Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay. I'm going to, again, we'll have all these on the front. Let me, let me do these and then you do those. So one of the things that, again, to illustrate, there's so much to say that I do not have the time to say that I want to talk about now 
is the conversation about children with their bodies and how they need to learn to understand God made them beautifully and God wants to protect them. So, for example, this book here, and again, I'll put these out here, God Made All of Me, a book to help children protect their bodies. Um, one of the, one of the com- most common, uh, I would say misnomers, but maybe just lies, is the idea of stranger danger. That is that, you know, white van that goes by with the tinted windows. Don't take candy from those people. When the reality is most physical and sexual abuse upon minors happens by people that they know firsthand, either by family or by trusted friends of family, supposedly friends, who abuse those people. And I think similar to talking to your sons or daughters about sex, what is it? I think even earlier is to talk about how God made you. And so, for example, a couple of resources, God made all of me, I said no, a kid to kid guide, kid to kid guide to keeping private parts private. Um, good pictures, bad pictures, porn proofing today's young minds, and good pictures, bad pictures, junior, so the younger version, a simple plan to protecting young minds. Um, I find that the topics about sexuality and those sort of minds of privacy, children, be they young or be they older, are taught too little too late. And no one is helped by that. Now, that segues into... And, and I segued that based on the, the friend comment that I just made. Um, it, that is your child. You need to be very protective of where they sleep over, if they sleep over anybody's house. I know some parents who say zero sleepovers, and I am quite fine with that. We... We did that. We did that, except with a couple of one, people. With one couple, I think, was only one family. Yes. So just to understand sleepovers, we never let our kids do sleepovers. Like, well, that sounds rather oppressive. Why? You don't go to someone's house to sleep. You go to someone's house to play. So play as long as you want. I don't care. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. When we ready to go to bed, just call me. I'll come get you. Most bad things happen at houses when people are supposed to be sleeping and they're not. And I don't mean like smoking marijuana, though that could be true as well. So back to what you're saying. Yeah, so basically, I would not be letting your kids go anywhere without reading some of these books. And the one that Eric is, is about to show you in this stack, which is more, those are more about abuse and protecting your body. This is more about learning how to have the, the sex conversation and at what ages do you give what important information. Um, can I highlight this? Yes. So the misnomer, and maybe you know this from your own experience, is that parents think about the talk. When did you have the talk? It, that's already a wrong way to think about it, as if it's a single talk. Like, well, we did that, we're good. As opposed to like talks, like this progressive continuing conversation. Uh, these are great resources that are gender-specific and age-specific. So for example, why boys and girls are different. This is for the girls ages four to six. This is for the boys age four to six. So they start off with teaching how God made you beautifully and wonderfully and how to celebrate that as a gift. They also are very pro-adoption as well in these books, and I really appreciate that. Then they move up to age uh, seven to nine for boys and girls. Then they move up to uh, ages uh, 10 and 12 for boys and girls. 
13 and 15 for boys and girls, and then the last one is ages 15 and up. So they're very, very helpful. A number of these ones you just read with them, and, uh, and I think I'd highly recommend it. You probably heard the funny story about the kid that came home, five-year-old, um, asked the mom, hey, mommy, what is sex? She's like, okay, I've been preparing for this. I know exactly what to say. We're going to sit down. They had like a 45-minute conversation. She told her child everything, like all the details, all the ins and outs, just so that, you know, there wouldn't be any question marks. And then at the end of the conversation, she said, honey, what made you ask that? And the child handed her a paper from the teacher, and the top said, sex, M-F, with squares next to it. And the mother was like, Okay, <laughs> maybe I shared a little, a little too much too soon. And so point being, if your children have questions, ask them what's making them think about that or any other number of ways you could do that and then dig into any of these books. Heather Apollo, you are up. Okay, um, you referenced not raising legalists. And I was wondering when children are young, how do I or we teach and expect obedience without then influencing them to be legalists or just purely behavioral modification? Excellent question. I would say two primary points to consider this. One, to remind them that the, the security of the relationship is not in question. In other words, mom or dad will love you based on what you do or don't do. So you don't want your child to think they're securing the relationship or running the risk of losing the relationship based on I did what's right or wrong. That's a fundamental thing that legalism doesn't teach. Legalism says I'm good only as long as I'm good. Or we're good only as long as we're good. That's antithetical to the gospel. Second way you want to be careful of legalism not coming in is how you orient yourself towards other people. In other words, how you see them versus yourself. If you're always othering others, no pun intended, in the sense that you're, you can't relate to them, you are better than them, you know more than them, your children do not see themselves in solidarity and a likeness of them, then you're going to have a problem of legalism that comes in. I'll give an example. When our, one of our sons was in middle school, he was physically choked in the bathroom by another kid, say a bully. There's no parent in the world who wants their kid to be choked. And you can imagine everything in me instinctively is like, I will find that kid, and I will make him wish he never put hands on you. And after I settled down, became more rational, we talked through it, talked through it with him, one of the things I wanted my son to think about was what's got to go on in the kid's life that when he comes to school, his primal instinct is I choke other people. I don't know, and I'm not saying it's excusable. I've got to imagine that kid has seen violence, maybe felt violence. I want my child to not just say, man, I obviously want my child to feel safe and want there to be consequences for these actions. There are, those are appropriate responses. But I want my child at the same time to want there to be a sense of justice, also understand mercy in regards to like, 
man, how can we pray for this kid? How can we care about this kid? Legalism doesn't have a category for that. Legalism is always like, I'm doing the right thing and they're doing the wrong thing. I'm othering others from who I am and what I'm struggling with or I'm not struggling with. So those two categories, I think, can help frame it as far as one, am I at risk of losing the relationship with my parent based on what I do right or wrong? And then two, how am I viewing myself in comparison to everybody else as far as in solidarity or in self-righteousness? Legalists pursue self-righteousness with no relational certainty because God only loves them only in so much as they do the right thing. And that's antithetical to the gospel. I think uh, practically that can come up in the discipline moments where you make sure you hear yourself saying as the parent, listen, mommy can get you to do this thing the right way by taking away this toy or whatever, but, but I don't want to just change the way that you're acting. I want to change your heart because that's what God looks at. So to have like, if you just find yourself having them hear you say, this is a heart conversation, again, not a behavior modification thing, but a heart conversation. And if they're hearing that consistently, it's the classic, you know, she whacks her sister in the head with a toy and you say, go say sorry. And she says, sorry, you know, and she's not sorry. So do we make them say sorry so that they say sorry and we can get back to doing whatever we were doing? No, we want, we want their hearts. So just hearing, hearing that by way of communication in those moments usually makes an impression. Any other questions? We don't prolong the night, but we want to give you a chance to ask questions. It'd be helpful while we're here. Okay. I don't really know how to word this question, but um, I know that when you get married, right, like the in-law relationship is a very important, like, uh, issue to deal with, you know? Um, and I'm just wondering, I guess, like, what is important for, like, when you have kids, considering, like, the in-laws will be there more often to, like, support and stuff. I just don't know what to, like, expect. Or... Yeah. You want to go first in this one? I will start off You by... look eager to say something here. All the memories are flooding back. Um, we had the first grandchild on both sides intense um and let me tell you what i am looking forward to being a grandparent but i am going to have some boundaries um and i think for it's yourself for myself because i remember those moments all too well um it is okay for you to set boundaries but you you need to be on the same page and it may be appropriate for him to address his side of the family with the boundaries and me to address my side of the family with the boundaries unless he for some reason needs to step into that. Um, but it is okay to set boundaries. You don't need to feel bad for setting boundaries. I will say that in-laws or even your own parents, they're, they're not necessarily doing things to irritate you or try to meddle. I don't think there's any of that back motive going on for most people. Um, but it can come across that way. And I, we have very specific conversations where I had to tell him to tell his mother, you really got to tell her to back off on this because this is what we've heard from the doctors and she's saying do the opposite and we're not going to do that one. <laughs> we're going to do what the doctors say. So I'll start with that and then you can go. Yeah, so I, I think we understandably as two different people raised in two different homes have 
default practices that we're raised in and that our parents did. And whether or not our parents were Christians or not obviously influences that, as well as how our parents thought what was best or right, and after all, we turn out to be functioning human beings, so like, it must be right kind of thing. It could be very pragmatic in its default. I think one thing that's very, very important is for the husband, the father of the child, but the husband in the relationship, to be clear as to how he's going to make decisions he thinks is best for the household and, and own that so it doesn't put you in a difficult spot relationship with your family. So there's been times that when my kids were younger that there were things that my in-laws, who, I, who do love Jesus, do love their grandkids, would default to a different practice than we thought was best. And I would not put my wife in a difficult relationship to explain that. I would take responsibility for that. Um, so practically speaking... Um, in her home, Christmas is like Chinese New Year. It's this overwhelming holiday where 47,000 presents are provided to each person, and it takes days to unwrap everything. A little bit of exaggeration. Not anymore, in the beginning. In the beginning. And, and it's part of the reality is because it's such a huge family. Like, the, the Miami Mafia is actually her family. Um, and... That just, I was overwhelmed when I saw it as when I was dating her, but then I became a dad. I realized, oh, this is going to probably overwhelm what I'm trying to do as a dad and teaching things about Christmas and Christ. And I kind of want to put a governor on this. So I made a decision in conversation with my wife. I made a decision about how we're going to try to regulate that. And I wanted to explain that to my in-laws and to my parents Here's how we're going to handle this. And I realize that's different than what you've done with me or with your daughter. I understand that. If you could just respect our decision. We're super thankful you love your kid, your grandkids. We're super thankful you want to be. That's all true. But just here's what we're trying to accomplish with our goals. They either didn't understand it or they understood it but didn't agree with it, both of which I was okay with. I was responsible for my household. What I didn't want to do is just go into autopilot that I didn't want to offend mom or dad by somehow just defaulting to whatever they wanted to do. And it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a living experiment. Um, and that meant I needed to speak respectfully and appreciatively to both my in-laws and my parents. The joke is that people sometimes had the biggest heart, uh, disagreement with my parenting was not her parents, it was my mom. Who just wanted to be like a stereotypical grandmother, just like, just smother my kids with all things grandmotherly. And I had to kind of create some, okay, mom, appreciate that, but here's what we're trying to do here. She's like, well... Great. Anyway, and she would just like go on to do her own thing. And I'm like, Mom, Mom, work with me here. So it, 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 was, it wasn't just a one and done conversation. It was just sort of continued repeating. We have to kind of go back to. But, you know, again, speak honorably about your parents to your kids. Commend that relationship when you can. Um, and they just recognize it's a bit of it. But whenever there's tough conversations, to those who are married with husbands here, I call them the husbands to have those tough conversations with both sides of the family. Like, be a man, have the conversation, and own it as representation of a decision that we're making as a couple versus, like, this passive husband, I don't know, whatever she says, talk to her. Don't do that. Don't do that. Commercial. Oh, oh. We're done. Okay. Just kidding. We're back. Commercial for BabyWise. Page 229, question 14. I recently was at a family gathering and put my eight-week-old down for a nap. He began to cry. And everybody looked to see what I was going to do. Grandma volunteered to get the baby. I let her do it, but I felt pressured between my son needing a nap and my family wanting me to do something. What should I have done? 
The answer depends on your baby's age. If grandma wants to rescue the baby, your three-week-old will probably fall asleep very comfortably in Aunt Martha's arms. Sorry, grandma's arms, and that will be fine for this one visit. When your baby is six months old, it would be better to let grandma know that her favorite grandson will be up and ready for hugs and kisses in a couple of hours in a much happier frame of mind. So there's a little practical blurb on the comprehensiveness of that book. Yeah. Final question or two before we call it a night and come back tomorrow. Yes, sir. Make the, will this be the final one? Um, I think there can be a lot of fear associated with parenting. So how do you not let your mind like run amok in what ifs? And if you do genuinely have fear towards something, like what, what do you do with that? Good news is if you mess up in the beginning, your children will never know. <laughs> so make all your mistakes in the very beginning and we'll, we just won't even talk about it, okay? So you're good there. Fear, okay. Real thing, I think it's harder for moms than it is for husbands. So husbands, be patient with your wives. Secondly, if you don't learn to not fear all the little steps in the beginning, bad news is there's a million other steps coming after that. So if you do the breathing check, you know, at, at the crib every two hours before there, yeah, you're going to wear yourself out and all the people that have already gone through that are laughing because they know that that's what you do. You check to see if your kids are breathing. Um, there are so many different stages to come. What if they go to school? What if they get choked in the bathroom at school? Eric's kid got choked. What if, what if? You could do that for a million years. You just, I mean, what if your kid goes to work in Alaska on dangerous fishing boats? These are real scenarios. You got to let it, you got to let it go. You got to trust the Lord. You're going to drive yourself nuts. I think from the very beginning of parenting, God gives you these children as a gift. You need to make wise decisions. Upon making the wise decision, and wisdom is determined based on the word of God and the counsel of mothers who help you apply the word of God, you didn't have to rest. So to trust God is not a, an invitation to reckless parenting. Uh, this isn't telling kids, you know what, as an expression of trusting God, do whatever you want, with whoever you want, watch whatever you want, go anywhere you want, I trust God. No, no, that's, that's, not, that's irresponsible. So I think there's a call for wise decision-making from when they're babies to, you know, when they're teenagers and young adults. But after making those decisions, you've, you've got to stop now and, and really take inventory. What am I worried about? And I think what ends up happening is, like anything else, not just unique to parenting, fear is practical atheism. That there's a God that doesn't exist in a future where there's problems that do, and I'm worried about what I've got to do to keep that from happening. You become that God. Uh, the problem is you'll die a thousand deaths trying to accomplish that future with no promise that any action you take is actually to deliver that future. So it's a, it's a call to be responsible, trust the Lord and rest. And realize it's as much about what the Lord's teaching you as he's teaching your child.